Hi, this is Delegate Jared Solomon, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast. We may not always agree on policy, but I think we can all agree that this is the best podcast in Annapolis. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with my co-host, Mako's Executive Director, Michael Sanderson. Kevin, how are you? I am very well. How are you today? Good, thanks. Today on the podcast, we will talk about the bill signing that wasn't. We'll take a look at clean energy. We'll share our thoughts there. And then new technology driving new policy again. Revisited. Revisited. Yeah. <laughs> so, Michael, first, let's talk a little bit about last week's episode. We had John Frenay on from Ion Annapolis and the Maryland Craps podcast. I've gotten a lot of positive feedback on that episode. I thought it was a great time. For sure. This this Maryland podcast month and all the synergy that's showing up across people trying to do this kind of medium and trying to you know talk about local interest issues or we're doing some policy and politics and other people are doing foodie stuff and whatnot. But I mean, everybody's got some overlap and that showed right there. I mean, he's not exactly a policy guy and we're not exactly Annapolis guys. And he doesn't claim to be a policy right, guy, yeah. right? But, but I mean, I thought that was, that was great, right? Absolutely. I, I mean, and good you, conversation. <laughs> yeah. You and I were talking earlier. I mean, I think you made the perfect analogy. Yeah, he's, I mean, this is, this is the guy that you end up randomly sitting at the next bar stool from at, you know, some Annapolis water hall and basically the next thing you know they're flipping the lights on and off and saying you know you don't have to go home you can't stay here it's closing time and you've been entertained because this guy is just like one story after another you know it's just i don't know this yeah. endless conversation go? that could have been that could have been a three-hour pod for us and then we would lose all of our listeners easy easy <laughs> yeah i mean i had a great time he definitely has a wealth of knowledge and he knows everything there is to know about annapolis so uh it was a great great episode yeah. and if you haven't listened to it go back and take a listen but michael you mentioned maryland podcast month and, you know, we've done these collaborations and then we heard the Maryland Crabs was on with Red Maryland and, and they actually, right. it was flattering to hear them talk about the Conduit Street podcast. Right. So John and his his colleague, Tim, they, they did a crisscross with, with with Red Maryland and that was, you know, talking about the podcast, podcast medium and and the, the sort of celebration month and so forth. And, you know, that was interesting. And then, you know, we pop up in that conversation a couple of times as, you know, one other player in this whole, I don't know, I don't know. I know there's a Twitterverse. Is there, so, is there a podcast? podcast averse is there it's, such a thing if, it, if there's not right. it's it's rapidly approaching <laughs> so so nonetheless but in, in that in that environment i mean so you know we we have a place in there too and that's that's nice to you know realize that we we exist too so that's good so you know i i listened to uh, red maryland with john and i don't know it was it was flattering to hear us mentioned i mean what did you think i know you listened to it as well yeah I mean, obviously we have a different lane than some others who are out there right so i mean we're we work for this organization we represent and all these different folks. So we we try and cover news and policy and invariably some of that gets into politics, but I mean no one's tuning in to Conduit Street or looking to Mako for, you know, these deep insights or we're gonna you know we're gonna tell you our opinions and that sort of we're that sort pundits, of stuff. I mean, right. right. So that's not that's not really our gig. I mean there are I guess there are specific places where Mako has taken positions and that shows up in the podcast. I'm thinking about, you know, we spent a lot of time on small cells and the 5G wireless and whether there should be community input. And that's something where our organization has spoken really clearly. We think there should be community input in that. So, I mean, 
when we were talking about the, those issues, we certainly were lacing that with the Mako point of view. I, I mean, that's fine if we're doing some degree of lobbying over the over the podcast medium. That, that that's okay, but, right? And I know. think the key word you mentioned is organization, because it's always good to remind people that our organization is right. driven by our membership. Right? You and I don't right. take bill positions, right? And we're not the ones in the lead of that process. Even it's mm-hmm. our members who decide to do that sort of stuff. So yeah, we're we're doing our best to try and be. I think you know some expository discussion here's what's out there here's what we think is interesting and when we can offer some analysis and you know some of that is analysis of the political actors or the political fortunes of things and we've been i think our track record is pretty good of predicting what's going to happen with one thing or another but you know this isn't where people are coming to find out well i wonder what those two guys think about this thing or that i am very excited for maryland podcast month it's growing and i am excited to do it again next year and I hope that we have even more players in the game. Well, one of the best outcomes is going to be people, you know, some people who are listening to Conduit Street are going to tune in to the Maryland Crabs or they're going to tune in to Red Maryland or they're going to go through the list of all the participants and they're going to say, wow, I didn't know this was out there. I should check that out, too, because I'm plugged in in Maryland and that sounds good. And if on John Frenet's say so, we get a few more listeners. I'm down for that. too, And vice versa. Yeah. Okay, so let's get into the bill signing ceremony that wasn't. So <laughs> Governor Larry Hogan yesterday announced that he was canceling a bill signing ceremony that was scheduled for this Thursday. And Michael, first of all, I think we need to point out that just because the governor doesn't sign a bill, it has no impact on the legislation. It, it doesn't change the effective date. It doesn't change the content, whether he signs the bill or he doesn't. Only if he vetoes a bill would there be an issue. Right. And we haven't heard announcements that he's just going to veto all the bills that are left out there. This isn't that. So no one ought to panic about this. This is a process thing and a little bit of a pageantry thing rather than substance. But probably the most important takeaway here is this is you know not really that big a deal. And you've been around for a long time. We know there are a lot of major issues hanging out there. But typically, the last signing, the last scheduled bill signing, is that typically reserved for maybe not the highest profile of issues? Right. I think that's that's typically the case. And we've already seen you know, the governor made a real point of you know, slotting up. We're, we're up there in the state house on bill signing days and they have this big grid of all the bills that are going to get signed that day and they're in long columns and so forth. But they always front load a handful of things where they know there's either a large crowd or there's going to be a press event before or after the signing, that sort of thing. I mean, this is, this is done tactically mm-hmm. by every governor and by legislative leaders to make sure this is scheduled in a way that makes the day work. So on one day, you're going to bring in certain types of advocates. They're going to be really excited that their bill got signed. You front load that. You get a big picture. You talk to some microphones. You make a big deal. Right. And what typically happens, and, and I mean, after many cycles of this, um, every governor I've seen in Maryland basically leaves the last day for things that were either technically complicated or tricky to sort out. Um, The attorney general staff is reviewing bills for what they call legal sufficiency to make sure they adhere to the single subject rule or they don't violate something in the constitution or contract clause or other things like that. So they're really the last line of defense. Yeah. So, so that process is going on for a few weeks after the session and some of the stuff that gets pushed to the last signing day is just there because it was complicated or because 
There are stakeholders on both sides asking the governor, please sign it, please veto it. That happens too. Usually those get pushed back to a late date. Um, so, I mean, short version is there probably wasn't anything on this list that the governor felt was a high priority to let's make sure we have a really big day for this bill. We already did those big days on those bills, and then we did that earlier in the process. Right, and you know, also it is commissioning week in Annapolis, oh, and if you haven't been here during commissioning week, I can tell you, traffic is a nightmare. There are people everywhere, and maybe that had something to do with it. Maybe the thought of you know, maybe we shouldn't bring hundreds of more people here where we already can't find parking. That would just exacerbate the situation. So maybe that played in a little bit. I mean, especially during a year when the city of Annapolis was before the General Assembly and before the governor right. talking about the use of their infrastructure and you know being burdened by by all the activities going around in and around the state capitol complex. And I mean, honestly, you know, the Rowe Boulevard itself leading right up to the state house is full of orange cones right now. Yeah. It's, it's actually, you know, exhibit A. So Yeah, that's uh, my nightmare, my nightmare. But <laughs> But um, we mentioned a lot of major issues hanging out there. Some of these bills maybe are bills where you have people on both sides sending in letters, asking the governor to sign or not sign. And one of those might be the prescription drug affordability bill. We've talked about that on the podcast. Right. It is a pretty high profile issue, but it seems like the governor is signaling he's going to let that go without a signature. I, I think so. As we talked about this, I think we listed this on you know, right after session. We did a walkthrough on the pod of you know a half dozen topics where we didn't know what the governor might do. And right. I think we listed this. In, in part because there was some partisan skepticism about the nature of the original bill. And what came out of the legislature was sort of a review board that's supposed to develop strategies and maybe down the road this turns into more concrete action. Yeah, the bill is certainly stripped down. Yeah, it's not not nearly the, the firm sort of payment caps concept that was in the original bill that might have been more controversial. Yes. Um, I, I, I would agree. I think the governor has more or less signaled his comfort with the bill. So this one probably ends up in the big bucket, which is he'll not sign the bill. They won't have the ceremony. The bill still goes into effect uh, without his signature. So um, it ends up being the same, the same thing. And one of the bills that I think we do want to get into a little bit is the Clean Energy Jobs Act. And obviously, this was a high profile bill. Uh, The governor says he will let the bill become law without his signature. And of course, this bill mandates that Maryland's electric utilities get half of their energy from renewable sources by the year 2030. While the governor did express major reservations about the bill, he also said that he plans on introducing his own legislative package on day one of the 2020 session and with the goal of putting Maryland on a path to 100 percent clean energy. Yeah. So there's a lot to unpack here. And and I think this is worth some of our time. I mean, some of this is interesting a lot of this is interesting policy. Mm-hmm. Some of it is interesting politics. And then there's also a connection back to county governments. And I mean, if you're tuning in for the Mako Conduit Street podcast, part of what we do talk about is county governments. There's a land use element here that is interesting for those, for, for our elected officials and professionals back in county government who are sort of managing planning and zoning at, at the local level. So, I mean, I mean, first in practice, uh, this means the, means the bill becomes law. Right. And that wasn't a certainty. Uh, we talked in a little bit of detail about this right at the end of session. I mean, this went down to the wire. Yes, it did. This, this bill was still being sorted out and being amended on the last day of the session on Monday morning. They were amending the bill and changing it in the House with no clear path 
for that to get sorted out in the Senate. Right. Um, and you know, people around town were really chatting and wondering, well, maybe that's the reason why they have to do a full day on the last Monday and so forth. Um, I mean, the, the Senate ultimately just took the House version of the bill. Just because they ran out of time. It was curious. Right. It was it was that or nothing. Mm-hmm. And that was pretty clear. Uh, so, so I mean, this was this was something that got a lot of attention. The environmental community was really geared up on this issue. It was the top of their priority list for this session. But we had heard conflicting things in the early parts of this legislative session, uh, in part connected to a study that was going on that wasn't going to be done until later this calendar year. Right. There was a lot of people saying, why don't we wait till the end of the study? We've already paid for it. And once we have the results, then we can look at legislation. And that seemed to be the narrative. I mean, all the way up until the yeah. waning days of session, particularly in the house mm-hmm. we had, I mean, this is, a, you know, even though, even though on the podcast and, and colloquially, a lot of people talk about legislative leaders, but there are times that the house of delegates and the Maryland Senate have different points of view Sometimes it's on substance. Sometimes it's on timing or approach or things like that. Uh, we saw that with school construction this past year. But this was an area where it seemed like they had a difference of opinion. And I think through most of the legislative session, uh, a lot of people would have put their money on this bill won't pass this year, but it probably passes in some form this term. Right. So maybe it'll be in the 20 or the 21 legislative session. And if you're setting goals for to get this accomplished by 2030 or some out year, it doesn't matter much. Wouldn't be the end of the world. It doesn't matter much which of, you know, whether you pass it in 19 or 20 or 21, you can get to that target by the same timetable. So bottom line here, this bill is set to become law and Maryland will become the first state with a Republican governor to commit to a 50% RPS or renewable portfolio standard and the 10th state overall. The portfolio standard is, is the state law that says if you're in the energy distribution business in the state, you've got to get your energy from sources that match what we require. Right. So so electric generation is unregulated, but distribution is regulated in the state. And if you want to be a player, you have to have your standard service come from sources and the state can sort of dictate that. And this is being more aggressive. We got to have a higher share of clean energy. And Michael, I want to get your thoughts on whether or not the governor is taking control of the narrative by announcing that he's going to have his own legislative package next year and he wants to go even further. He might have different ideas on how to get there. But is this the governor taking control of this whole clean energy jobs narrative? Well, that, I mean, so the announcement is, is uh, I think, to some folks in town was a surprise that the announcement was not just I'm going to let the bill go into effect, mm-hmm. which – yeah, we, we had, we had speculated, is it possible the governor would say, I think this bill is so flawed that I'll veto it and have the legislature go back, go back to the drawing board, or they can override my veto in January if they right, really feel like right. they have to. Um, we thought that was a possibility, and I think some people in town thought that. Um, instead, he plays a very different card and said, I'm going to let this bill become law. I have reservations about the bill, and So he basically said, I don't want this debate to end. And then it's sort of like he plays a whole series of cards. You know, it's like gin rummy. It's like, oh, wow, I've got the five, six, seven, eight, nine. Right. Right? So suddenly he says, not only am I letting this bill go, but I'm going to fix it and make it stronger and better. And 50% clean is not good enough. Maryland should be able to get to 100% renewable. It's a, it's a further off year. He set 2040 right. as the target year, but he says Maryland can get there in a longer stretch of time. We'll get all the way 
way to 100% clean sourced energy. Um, we haven't seen all the specifics. Uh, he wants to get to a zero net carbon emissions, mm-hmm. uh, whether and that may be on the same timetable or something else. But still, what he's basically said is, you know, hold my beer. And 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 we've seen this before, right? There was another <laughs> issue a few years ago where this storms, the same sort of thing happened, right? Right. I, I mean, I, I think the the game plan here is very similar to what we saw on in on on. On fracking, hydraulic right? fracturing. Hy- yeah, so it's a hydraulic fracturing is is getting oil and gas through this this different kind of mining. You pump water into the ground and so forth, and it kind of became all the rage for a while, particularly to get natural gas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you now there are there are places, particularly in Western Maryland, that look like decent candidates for this to start happening. Uh, the state had fits and starts with regulations and limits and so forth. The legislature grappled for two or three legislative sessions with what to do and maybe to change liability laws or to have you know strict limits and so forth and then the governor maybe sensing that this was going that way anyway uh sort of surprised almost all the players and showed up and said we're going to ban fracking. I'm doing it by executive order. The game's over. It was remarkable. Right. I remember the press conference. It, it <laughs> came together very quickly, sure. and no one really expected him to do that. But this very similar uh, to what happened then. And you mentioned executive order. The governor says he has a legislative package for next year, but right. it's very possible that he could just issue an executive order and, and take care of it that way. Uh, to some degree, I'm not. I'm not sure you can do every. You can't change the right, statutory right. portfolio standard. But he could say, I, this is my new goal. He can, right? Yeah, and he can say, these are state policies, and I expect executive agencies to work in conformance with those policies. Right. So there's a good deal that the governor could do on his own. There's some that would require the help or the cooperation of the legislature, and it sounds like he plans to hit the ground running with this. Uh, but I think the narrative is is going to be different now. And Instead of this being an issue where maybe Maybe most of the Republican Party shows up and says, well, we're really sensitive to cost concerns and so forth. It may be that with the governor's leadership, you'll now see collaboration. That's what happened on fracking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the issue went from being contentious regionally and, and party wise to suddenly a near consensus. I mean, it was, it was a slam dunk. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> We talked about the study that wasn't yet completed, and the governor criticized the legislature for passing a bill before that yeah, study was gun. done, yeah. right? Uh, and he suggested that the rush to pass it was, quote-unquote, politically motivated. Hmm. And let's talk about that a little bit because I know this bill was resurrected. I mean, it, like we said earlier, it really came out of nowhere at the end of session. Everybody thought it was wrapped up and ready for next year, but then it, it came to fruition and all of a sudden was on the floor and there was this giant debate. So, so I, I think – With the governor's announcement this week, you have a couple pieces have fallen into place that there were whispers in the breeze around Annapolis in the late part of session that this issue was shaping up just like fracking. Right. And it was shaping up as one where the governor realized this was going to happen. So, I mean, you know, we, we talked through the arithmetic here. If the governor had vetoed this bill, it's a virtual certainty that the legislature would have either overridden the veto, they had the votes to do it mm-hmm. with the basic vote on this bill, or they would have passed another bill that might have, you know, tidied up, you know, some of the rough edges here or there, and they would have gotten a bill on his desk and had one with a veto-proof majority. So, if this is going to happen anyway, it starts to look like the territory for the governor to say, "Is this a way that I can put my stamp on it?" 
So, so that being said, <laughs> were you surprised by his announcement yesterday? You know, we would go back to talk about fracking, what happened there, and, and there were these whispers around town, it sounds like, that yeah. the same thing might happen here. So were you surprised to see his announcement? So I, I, think, I think insiders would probably say this is not a total shock, and actually it makes the story make more sense. It so, absolutely so does. So now that the governor has stepped in and grabbed this issue, you dial back to day 85 of the 90-day session and even day 90 of the 90-day session, and half of Annapolis is scratching their head saying, why on earth are they hustling through this bill? It seems like it's imperfect. There are senators who have just crisscrossed on their votes. Right. What's going on? They're really, they're really hustling it through. This ultimately ends up being about the narrative. And so breaking that down even further, are you saying Democrats were worried that the governor was going to take the narrative and he was going to do exactly what he did with the fracking bill and really kind of, I don't want to say take credit, but I do want to say take credit and maybe worry about losing control of that whole narrative. And so then you realize we got to get this through and we need to do it quickly. So so I guess what you'll get out of this is lots of stakeholders are going to be very happy this bill is becoming law. So there's a lot of effort. We've seen stuff in the public media. I mean, not just, you know, things on the corners walking around the town of Annapolis, but, you know, things in public media and so forth and, and newspapers and, and advertisements and so mm-hmm. forth, you know, saying this is about clean, this is about jobs, a big effort to say this is an economy driven issue as much as an energy and environment driven issue. So big push on this. A lot of folks are going to be given high fives and taking victory laps. They're going to be thanking their legislators. And now it looks like we're going to do another lap around the track as you debate zero carbon and 100% and 2040, and you probably gin up all the old engines again, maybe in a, in a, in a different terrain with the governor saying, I'm for it and here are my principles. And you'll have you'll have you know folks out there with their you know their their green paraphernalia and and, and banners and and slogans and pennants and so forth and now they're cheering for that team right yeah and it's a big emphasis of this bill was is jobs and in the governor's letter where he explained why he was letting this bill take effect and he explained that he would have his own legislation he mentioned that he wants to make sure that these jobs are Maryland jobs. But in the same letter, he also expressed concerns that this will turn into a land grab because if you have to have this clean energy, these jobs be in Maryland, you put a lot of pressure on local land use and farms. If you need a bunch of solar farms, obviously, that's going to take up a lot of space. Yeah, it's so so this is where this phases into being something that is a county government matter. And this is a little bit subtle, but lying in the background of this debate over clean energy, and I mean, the principal players here, let's be fair, the principal players here are the, the environmental community who would really like to see us using more clean energy and renewable stuff and the definition being tight and that sort of stuff. So we, we get that. Right. Then you also have the sort of electric users community, the business community, and maybe people representing uh, you know just citizens who have an electric bill and where afraid the bill is going to go up by four bucks a month or whatever. And that was a lot and, of the debate. Yeah. So that's a, that's the sort of centerpiece of the debate is, is this a good trade? Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, accomplishing these environmental goals, is it worth what it's going to cost the businesses and residents of Maryland? Okay. Lying in the background, though, is if, if you go to a higher standard, higher requirement for cleaner energy, that's going to mean more sort of 
an artificial demand right. for wind power, solar power, and and other sources that qualify as clean. I mean, I don't know if there's I don't know if there's big opportunities for more hydroelectric. That's one of the things the governor mentioned. You know, who knows what else is out there that passes as clean energy. But the main player there is solar. Well, the big right player now. really is solar, at least for the near term. Mm-hmm. And what we already see across Maryland, it's a big issue when our county leaders are together is big pressure in large rural areas that active farms being tempted to turn into basically silicon install installs right, <laughs> um, right. To, to basically just turn into big sheets of solar panels and become i'm i'm farming megawatts now i'm not doing soybeans and there is it's interesting because there is sort of a divide even in the agricultural community in the farmers are saying look some say i should have the right if i want to farm solar uh, energy then that's what i want to do some farmers say well we need to protect our prime soils and this is right. maryland's industry and we don't want to lose that right and I mean, and part of what local government is charged with doing is sort of maintaining the contours of a community. So if you have a big swath of a relatively rural county or a rural segment of an otherwise urban county, I mean, rural segments in Baltimore County and Prince George's County, Montgomery, Anne Arundel, I mean, places that you think of as suburban metro counties right. have big areas like this too. Mm-hmm. Um, there's tons of pressure for those areas to go from being horse farms and soybean growers to to pushing out you know to push, pushing out silicon panels now that's a really different look and feel for those areas if you've zoned that as pure agriculture as the stewards of the community you have a challenge do you approve a new use in that area is that is that commercial right. is that agricultural is it something you can just slap on top of an agricultural area and continue to call it a farm and of course you have the nimbys right you, you have a lot of pressure there that not in my backyard folks they don't want to look at solar panels maybe and then right. you know you also have the issue of whether or not this this does become a problem where you're trying to preserve land and you have historical lands that you need to preserve. So there's only so much land to go around. And, it, yeah. and if and if this is going to be this big push to, to make clean energy here in Maryland, to make the jobs here, is the governor, is there a bit of a mixed right. message in his letter? Well, I, I think it's I think it's an inherent tension in this issue. And I, I, I don't I mean, I think the governor is basically right to raise both of these concerns. Mm-hmm. But at some point, they they become in conflict with one another. You, you probably can't have both of those arguments all the way without. Yeah, without them stepping on each other's toes. If, you, if you're concerned that it's going to be companies from California or from Ohio or somewhere else who are going to swoop in and make a bunch of money in Maryland, and it's not going to be people who live and work here who reap the benefits of this investment in the energy economy. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's, I mean, that's a legitimate, a yeah, I mean, if you're governor of Maryland, that's the kind of thing you should be thinking about. The legislature's thinking about that too. Mm-hmm. So at the same time, to the extent that you say we want this activity to be within the state, that's moving in the direction of saying, well, we want we want those kilowatt hours to be coming from within the state. Right. And that's increasing the potential pressure on transforming land use within the state. And so that's I mean, it, this is this is not an easy resolution. There is a needle 
you know, a needle in need of threading. And as you said, I mean, this is not new. We've been talking right. about this for many, many years, and Mako has raised this issue many times. So right. it's coming back to the forefront, and it seems like now things are starting to come to a head. I think the stakes are just getting higher yeah. on this, right? I mean, if the state is going to be, you know, if we're going for 50 and we're thinking about 100, and now there's talk about let's make even more of it happen in and around Maryland, the idea of Maryland jobs sounds tantalizing. The idea of losing many or most of our Maryland farms has a downside that not everybody has thought through yet. So, um, you know, this isn't this isn't something that Mako has weighed in on and said we're for or against 50 percent or 100 percent. But I will tell you, we got a lot of people who were elected to keep an eye on our rural communities and who are concerned that they might not be able to hold off this onslaught of big hitter solar coming in and saying we want to go here and here and there and there and that's what we're going to do <laughs> right <laughs> okay and then the psc says yes and the locals don't even get to zone it and that's more more than you bargain and for. and that's so, the okay. county concern right, right? <laughs> okay so stay tuned there but obviously big developments here a bit of a surprise but this certainly does make a whole lot more sense when you connect uh, the narrative right i put all that stuff together maybe the prospects of this being the next step is part of the reason why the bill got pushed out of the legislature the way it did all right. So with that, we're going to go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we will get back into something that we've talked about before, new technology driving new policy, all that and more after the break. The Local Government Insurance Trust is the primary source for Maryland local governments to get insurance coverage. When the private insurance market doesn't understand your needs and doesn't really want to be in the business of covering your law enforcement officers and other public employees, Legit will be there. That is exactly why Legit was created over 30 years ago. Legit is different. Legit is owned and managed by its local government members. That means that when we do well, you do well. Members get premium credits when the trust has a good year. And Legit offers training and best practices year-round to make sure our members are doing their best with risk management. Competitive prices, outstanding service, and coverage that fits your needs as a local government. You can't beat Legit for all your coverage needs. Find out more at lgit.org or drop by their exhibit space at the MML or MAKO conference. Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale back here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, a while back we did two episodes on new technology driving new policy and really fascinating stuff. We'll put those links yeah. in the show notes. One of, one of my one of my favorite things yes. we spent some time yes. on, we did back to back and talked about a variety of different things, but all these places where something that nobody thought about in 1950 or 1980 or even 2000 is suddenly an issue just because technology has evolved. Even 2010. Yeah, right? even. <laughs> so there are a couple issues that we have seen in the news recently that are bringing us back to this topic and could have a substantial impact in Maryland and elsewhere. 
The first issue, Michael, is this this Uber price gouging story at Reagan National Airport. So right in our backyard. So the ride sharing companies, the Uber and the Lyft and so forth, they're competing with conventional taxi cabs, but they use an app or other sort of social media ways to call ride. These sort of independent contractors rather than medallion holders. There's a whole long history on this debate about what kind of industry is this? What does the what does the company Uber or Lyft really represent yeah. and so forth? So we got into that stuff some months ago. You know, Maryland's one of lots of places that have grappled with this about regulation and licensing and all this kind of stuff, background checks, that right, sort of thing. Right, right. But new twist. Right. So essentially what's going on, we've heard Ride-sharing drivers complain for a long time that their pay has steadily been decreasing, and right. they have approached these ride-sharing companies, and, and they say they haven't gotten anywhere. Right. So, a, a strike day recently, yes, just, yes. just a couple of weeks ago, there was a nationwide, you know, uh, you know don't use Uber, don't use Lyft because the you know, the the riders are trying to make a point with the companies and, and that sort of thing. So, I mean, this is not a brand new issue, but so some grievance with the drivers over, you know, what what they get out of the deal. Right. But maybe we've seen a new sort of protest because drivers at Reagan National Airport, they keep very close watch on flight schedules. They know when these planes are going to come in. And actually, they're able to manipulate these apps by turning off their app so that it seems the app thinks there are no drivers in the area. And then they shut them off for about 15 minutes. And then at the same time, everybody turns them back on. And at that point, you get into something called surge pricing. Right. So this is this is one of the concepts that's that's actually really part of the backbone of what makes Uber and Lyft work as well as it does is they're not it's not like a taxi cab i mean taxi cabs have sort of state regulated rates and if you run a company you're before the public service commission and you get told okay you can charge two dollars for the first one eighth of a mile and then another 24 cents for the next eighth of a mile or whatever the rates are and like those are the flat rates and if you drive for a cab company that's what you charge you tell people when they get in the cab you know these are the rates there's a little sheet of paper whatever it doesn't matter the time of day demand right so so companies like lyft and Uber, their concept is we're going to be smart about this. And if we sense that there are more riders than drivers, we will kick in surge pricing and elevate what we'll be willing to pay the drivers. So we'll get a few people who are sitting at home, you know, watching Wheel of Fortune, and then they get a note that say, hey, you know, that ride, you're not willing to go give that ride for 12 bucks. What if we pay you 14? What if we pay you 18? The concept of surge pricing is basically let's make this a dynamic market and if there's lots of riders out there and they can't find drivers we'll bump up the price some of those riders will probably say i'm not not willing to go at the higher price but those who stick around will get more drivers it's it's like an invisible hand adam smith would be proud at how uber has figured out the taxi cab market in in you know in the background that's very true and 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 the point there is that uber has an algorithm that can predict when there are more riders than drivers and right. send out these notifications that, hey, get in the car, you got a fare here that's going to pay you a lot, right. or you know we're going to make sure that the riders have to pay more. So that's supposed to click in when there's a ball game in Baltimore, or when there's an event letting out at the, at the equestrian center in Prince George's County or whatever. Suddenly, there's 40 people calling for rides. We bump up to surge pricing. We get a lot of extra drivers out for that window of time, and we solve the market problem. That's right. in concept how it's supposed to work. The the drivers bundling together like this are kind of gaming the system. And what you described apparently 
at least it started. We don't know how widespread this practice is, but at least seems to have started around airports. One right. place where lots of people are looking to get picked up for a ride. And a place where you can predict when planes are going to come in and therefore you can predict when volume is going to be high. Right. right. So you, have, you, can, you have to think so. Right? Right. right. So you can sort of manipulate that. Now, Uber says that responding to the claims that these drivers aren't making enough money, Uber says, look, they don't work for us. Right. They are independent contractors and Uber and these other companies say that they are, in fact, facilitators, that their service just connects these independent contractors with riders. So right. their customers, Michael, aren't the riders. They're, in fact, the drivers. And, and like this, this is a legal rabbit hole that I don't think we want to go deeply down. But the difference between what do you owe an employee right. versus what you owe an independent contractor who theoretically can just freely decide whether or not to deliver work or provide a service for you, um, that that's that's a meaningful difference in the law. Major and major. and and so that you know the assertion by these companies that that these folks are just they're freelancers and we let them know what the price is and we screen them, but after that they just decide when and how to work. We don't have any control over schedules and shifts and things like that that are the norm for an employer-employee relationship. We don't tell you, Kevin, you have to drive Friday night because we need people. They just say. That ride's paying 16 bucks on Friday night. And therefore, we don't need to offer you benefits that you may receive if you are an employee. Right. We don't need to offer you the ability to bargain, right. which the, is a big which mm-hmm. is a big issue here, right? Right. So that what I mean, their argument is basically, hey, we offer the price of 16 bucks, take it or leave it. If you don't want to drive, don't drive. Right. We just provide the platform, but in practice, the company is actually setting the price for right. more than its own services, right? Uber determines the price through its algorithm for the actual ride. It's, it's interesting because they're contending that those transactions are between two separate entities, but Uber's actually setting the price. They're controlling the market uh, for a service right. that they say they don't provide. Right. So, so, so that, I mean, that's one interesting piece of this. You've got the companies who basically claim we're just sort of a pass through. We're a facilitator. Right. We heard that's we hear key. that we hear yeah. that word a lot. We're, hear that, we're that word a lot when when the state legislature was grappling with where do they belong under state law? Is this a legal activity? And if so, you know, is there is should there be any role for the government in this at all? And the answer turned out to be, yeah, yes, we want A, B, and C for you to be able to operate and so forth. But so, so, so that itself is interesting. This, this general question of, um, you know, are, is, is Uber an employee? Is it, are they an employer? Right, right. And that's because, because I mean, we just, cha- we just changed minimum wage. We just changed, um, sick leave laws in Maryland, like lots of states. So at some point, if they're being held to the standards of an employer with hundreds and hundreds of employees, then do they have to, you know, live by those various standards, give people sick days and give them $15 an hour guaranteed? Their model like would that? fall apart, according right. to them, right? This according work. to them. We don't, know. We don't right. know. And Uber says that what's going on at National Airport is exactly what they've worried about. If you allow independent contractors to all get together and sort of manipulate pricing, that would essentially amount to price fixing, and that's illegal. So this is the new twist in this issue. Everybody's been concerned about are the companies, are the platforms, are they too much of a player? Are they skirting the rules? Are they getting an unfair advantage over the regulated taxi cab companies and so forth? So that's been the angle so far, and that's been the policy debate so far. Mm -hmm. Now you have a new entrant into this field, which is – 
I don't know. It's not something we deal with at the state level, but this is basically like an antitrust argument, mm-hmm. almost. Yeah, I mean, if you had companies who are supposed to be competing with each other are secretly whispering in each other's ear and and agreeing on on practices to artificially change prices. So you raise the price, yeah. I'm going to do it too. So the, the the United States government comes in and breaks it up as antitrust, mm-hmm. and they get you know they get fined and they get beat up and all this kind of stuff. So so that's I mean you got a variety of mostly federal laws, but basically the government has said we've got a stated public interest in preventing monopolistic or collusive behavior among providers. Right. So if in fact all or nearly all or enough of the providers, these independent contractors, these people who are driving for the ride sharing services, they're hanging out at the airport. They know that between 6.15 and 6.30, we all turn off our machines. We respond to nothing. That will confuse the, yeah, that'll confuse the, the computers right. at Uber and they'll suddenly click everything into surge pricing for the next three hours. And so all my $12 rides just become $18 rides. I'll take 15 minutes off to make half again my money for the rest of the night. Right. Okay, so now they're manipulating the market. No two ways about it. And of course they're saying they have to right. do that because they don't make enough money. Right. So right or wrong mm-hmm. – here, oh, I, we can hear the cavalry coming, right? Oh, yes. we, you can hear state legislature in this state and probably other places reading about this, and some of them will be saying, "I told you so. I, I knew. Like I knew this stuff was bad news. My my residents, you know, my 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 constituents are getting screwed, and we've got to get this thing fixed. We got to shut this practice down." It's on another side of the end of the business, right? This is now a practice of the providers as opposed to the coordinators, but still, it's about this newfangled business that basically didn't exist ten years ago. And there's still this argument to be made that even though Uber says this is what they've been worried about, there's an argument to be made that Uber is doing the very price fixing it says drivers can't do, and that the price it fixes is for a service it contends it doesn't even sell. I mean, this you can get way into the weeds, and we will post yeah. some links oh. on the blog. But the whole thing is fascinating, and this is perhaps, to me, the most interesting new technology driving new policy, especially with these new wrinkles. Well, and and we're going to be in the middle of it. I, yes. I don't know if it's going to be a county government issue. I don't know if it's going to be a matter of you know assigning county government some ability to oversee and regulate this stuff. I mean, is it going to be Anne Arundel County running around outside of BWI making sure this isn't happening? I don't know. Right. But, um, but you have to imagine someone in the Maryland General Assembly is going to have an aha moment and is going to dial up the bill drafter and say – Here's what I want. I want blue pieces of paper that say they can't do A, B, C, D, and E. And the bill drafter is going to say, my uh, goodness. My right. goodness, right. I, I and, and we'll be there. I mean, <laughs> there's going to be a bill hearing on this in February, and it's going to be all hands on deck. It'll be interesting. So the Uber drama in Annapolis may be far from over. <laughs> they may be coming back into town. We'll, we'll have to wait and see. And speaking of new technology driving new policy, Michael, we've talked about navigation apps before and how they exacerbate traffic problems in some areas. This is Waze. Waze I mean, right. That's the one I know. Google yeah, Maps. But, so you, you pull up an app, you're sitting in traffic, and it says, hey, if you take this right-hand turn, I can get you where you're going a couple minutes quicker. Right. We'll take you into some side roads, but I'll get you there. Like, I have GPS. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. used to using that. Everybody, you know, A lot of people have GPS, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's telling you, 
go down the highway. But now we got these smarter things that are saying, actually, if you do these other other sneaky things, you'll get there a few minutes quicker because the highways the highways beat right now. It's it's a jam. And if you've ever gone right. <laughs> uh, over the Bay Bridge during the summer on a Friday or a Sunday, you know that it's gridlock, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And so Friday afternoon. Oh oof. my gosh, forget it. And so <laughs> Queen Anne's County has been dealing with this issue. Of course, they are right on the yeah. eastern side of the Bay Bridge. Yeah, right, right where the bridge lands. You know, Route 50 goes right through the middle of that stretch. And I mean, frequently you end up with cars just sitting, you know, it's a, it's a lengthy parking lot. It's, it's almost a Maryland ritual at this point. You know, people, I got, you know, my, my rental starts on Saturday morning. I got to get down there, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's everybody going the same time to the same place and it, it just creates this chaos. But these navigation apps are now exacerbating the problem in Queen Anne's County and particularly on Kent Island. And we have heard about this affecting quality of life for the residents in Queen Anne's County. We've heard environmental concerns from all these vehicles sitting on Route 50 or side roads and idling, right? Air quality. Air quality. Mm -hmm. But now I think we've taken this to a whole new level. And and that's because first responders in Queen Anne's County, along with the county's health officer, say it's only a matter of time before someone dies due to the inability of first responders to reach emergencies Ah. in a timely manner. And that's because these local roads are now jammed with traffic traffic that diverted off of US 50 to try and save some time and get over the bridge. So so this is another one that 10 or 15 years ago there would be a few people who like knew the ins and outs of the side roads right, in and around right, Kent right, Island. Right. Bring and out they, your map. They kind of figured out. They had. I mean, I remember you, know, you used to carry around the county map in the back of your car. You could flip the page, you know, L fourteen or whatever, and it would show you. You could plan your whole say, route, and you could say, "Oh, well, if I turn here and I take a left and I go about eight blocks, I can pick get back into the same highway I was on." You get on Maple Street, right? And yeah, go, do, right. all this stuff, right? So you used to have a few people who would know how to do that, but it wasn't lots and lots of people. Now, if a third of the people stuck in traffic pull up some get me out of traffic app and it says, hey, you want to be on Maple Street, that's where it is. Now, suddenly, instead of there being, you know, 10 cars an hour over there, now it's 400 cars an hour over there and Maple Street is jammed too. And of course, these side streets are not equipped to handle this <laughs> this volume. And I mean, if you do have an emergency and, a, and an ambulance is not able to get through, as we know, uh, seconds matter in this business. Yeah, right? and, and the cars on the highway, generally there's a shoulder right. or there's some place where an emergency vehicle can get through even if they're jammed with traffic. Not the case on these smaller roads that are going through, you know, going through the middle of town or going through the middle of nowhere, not necessarily as much room. So if those places are backed up, you can end up with an ambulance just out of luck. And and this is not a new issue in Queen Anne's County. We mentioned that the, the commissioners there and residents and first responders have been dealing with this for a while, but it really seems like it's reaching a boiling point. Queen Anne's County did present a plan to the state is called the Bridge to Beach Plan. And essentially that would, at certain areas, certain exits off of Route 50, it would restrict local roads to local traffic. So you'd have sheriff's deputies there uh, ensuring that anybody exiting is local traffic only. The state rejected that plan. Mm -hmm. And so Queen Anne's is now going back to the drawing board and they say that all options are on the table. But 
if you hear from your public health officer and from your emergency responders that they can't get to people in a time of emergency, right. that really ramps things up. All right. I mean, the thing is, if if there if there were a silver bullet here, we already would have shot it. Absolutely. Right? Yes. So, yes. so this is this is a matter where Queen Anne's County is understandably trying to respond to their citizens and to the people who are coming through. Sure. I mean, everybody's aggrieved by this. Mm-hmm. We know that the state is in the midst of doing doing all these tests about environmental issues and also traffic measurements and so forth. Right. I mean, we saw at one point earlier this year, you know, a map leaked out with whatever 14 different possible sites for for a bay bridge crossing right, a new span. In, including sort of expanding the current one but then also looking at these different places lower on the shore, higher on the shore and so forth. Where could you where could you have a, an overflow traffic? And that's a whole other up. issue right. in itself. Yeah. I mean, that, that we could do a whole episode right. on that. But I mean, e- even in the most optimistic version of a new bridge span happening, that's not happening like by by the time of the Mako Summer Conference this August, right? No. no. <laughs> and and maybe a few Mako Summer Conferences right. years yeah, out. Yeah. I mean, we're talking multiple years, yeah, years away. Years. Right. So, I mean, the 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 Bridge to beach plan, obviously, that's complicated. I mean, what can you do? I mean, right. if you have these these emergencies, I mean, obviously, they're in a tight spot. I know the state is trying to work with them, but you're right. There's no silver bullet. And, I, you know, hopefully, tragedy doesn't strike. But we are certainly hearing... Uh, these folks ringing the, the the warning bells that something's going to happen. I, I mean, I think I think that I don't think we have a solution. I don't think there is an obvious solution sitting out there. Right. But I, I think the observation for right now is if you if you've tucked this away as you know neighborhoods being ticked off about traffic, mm-hmm. and it's just like oh, I don't like all these cars driving through my neighborhood. And it's it's unsightly or it's unwelcome. Right. That's one level of complaint. But the idea of a community saying, you know, half of our people are unreachable by an ambulance. That's a different thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we'll have to see what happens there. And Michael, I want to get into one more thing. I was at the Maryland Association of Election Officials Conference yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was fortunate to be invited down to speak on a legislative panel. And I just wanted to comment uh, what a great job they do. And this conference was jam-packed. There were a lot of great speakers, a lot of great information, a lot of discussion about cybersecurity. Obviously, yeah. that's a very, very hot topic. A lot of discussion about same-day voter registration. But, you know, I always come away from these just just absolutely floored by the work that these folks do. This is good government. This is right. what counties do. We run elections. Right. These people live and breathe this stuff. And for them to all get together and sort of collaborate and exchange ideas, talk about what's going on at the local, state, and federal level, it's always a great time. And um, I was just really impressed with the conference. I, I, I think you know, these these exchanges are always rewarding. I did something similar earlier this week, and I went and, and spoke to our county engineers group. Right, and right. They, you know, they, had, they had their own conference and most of their substance was technical sort of stuff. So, you know, county engineers, they're doing professional certification and a lot of that sort of stuff. So a lot of that was over my head, but I brought down the level of conversation to talk a little bit of policy with them. I did too. And that's, I mean, that's how it goes. But I like, we can't help but 
be impressed with the dedication of folks like that. And I'll say, particularly in, in the elections area, I mean, we've got people who do this for a living, who get paid a salary to be the managers and to run this stuff. And hats off to them. That's a that's the sort of job where you just don't want to be in the paper, right? No, I mean, yeah, yeah. Right? I no mean, news your, is good news. Like, your perfect year is when no one mentions anything about what you did. Everything goes smoothly. There's no long lines. None of the machines break down. None of the people you know fail to show up, right? That's your perfect year as an election administrator. You're not in for the glory. Is no one knows who you are, right? Right. Right. <laughs> right. right. Well, I mean, there's also scads of people who go to that conference who are there basically just to serve on the election board Absolutely. for each county. And I mean, this is not a position where you are getting wealthy and making big contacts and rubbing elbows with big shots and so forth. I mean, that's a matter of public service. I mean, every county needs a panel of people to be, you know, the ones who make the call on tough situations, but sort of guide the whole, you know, the whole program at, at their county level. Um, hats off to all those people, too. Uh, they were out in droves. I saw some of the pictures you took from the event. There were mm-hmm. lots and lots of people there doing exactly what they ought to, ought to be doing, and that is learning from each other on how to do the, the job right. Right, and great collaboration with the State Board of Elections, too. have to give a shout-out to them. These folks all do a great job, and as you said, them not being in the news is a, is a good day for them. <laughs> and I want to talk about something I mentioned, as I'm sure you did. I think we've been <laughs> mentioning this to everyone that we've talked to, and that is our favorite subject, Michael, and it's Kerwin. Ooh, it's the yeah, Blueprint like Bill, right? And what I told them, and I think their, the reception was good, and I think maybe they hadn't been thinking about this. And we've talked about it, but everyone needs to be paying attention to Kerwin, to the blueprint bill, right, of what's going on here in Annapolis. Because when you start talking about, you know, an additional $4 billion a year uh, in public education, we know that the pot of money is only so big. So if you're out there advocating for increased funding for your elections office or for first responders or for anything else, you may have a much more difficult time securing any kind of commitment at the state or the local level when there's so much outstanding that we don't really know how this all shakes out, but we do know that it's going to cost a lot of money. Right. So, and I, I, you're right. I made basically the same pitch to, I said, I, I understand you're in the public works field and you don't expect me, some clown from Annapolis to stand in front of the room and start talking about they, school they funding. They might have though. I mean, if they, they listen to this podcast, that's what they expect from us. We're going to talk that, about that, Kerwin. That's true. Mm-hmm. That's kind of our thing, right? Mm-hmm. But, um, but I, but I, I mean, my my point to them was basically this is the bird in the nest that's going to get to be fed first. And if you're something else and you know, almost independent of what else you are, doesn't matter. Um, I mean, if, if if things go the way it seems, the winds are blowing. And if the state is going to pass this monstrous commitment to education, it's going to mean a lot of new resources to schools, and it's going to mean, hopefully, a lot of new improved outcomes for the school children. Absolutely. Um, but one of the things that's going to come with that is either increases in revenues or taxes mm-hmm. or a lot of depletion from other things that government does. Cuts. And that's going to mean public works and the inner workings of government, the boring stuff like, you know, making sure we have the staff and equipment to run proper elections. Right. Behind the scenes stuff right. yeah. that keeps everything moving that we don't right. often think about, or maybe we do, but right. the, the general public <laughs> yeah. doesn't. So that's, I mean, that's going to be the untold story and the untold part of the debate about school funding is what does this mean for things other than schools? And 
they're not as sexy as education. I get it. So that's just, you know, that's, that's, that's part of that issue. But um, I think, you know, we're right to be saying that to people who are in the county community who are trying to deliver public services. And I, I mean, I said the same thing to finance officers a few weeks ago yes. and, and saying you know, at the state level, I'm, I was sharing the podium with a state employee. And I'm like, He's not getting a raise anytime soon. I know where that money's going. That's right. I mean, <laughs> and the state board on the panel with me were saying, yeah, you know, we understand we're going to lose a lot to Kerwin, but we got to make do. And, you know, speaking of Kerwin, Michael, let's talk about what we're looking forward to. We can't, we, we just we, can't, we can't get away from it, right? Can't. There's, the, you know, I mean, this, this reminds me, there's, there's a, there's a sketch from Monty Python. I'm, I'm dating myself because I don't know, most people with pod, podcast apps probably don't even know what Monty Python is. I would YouTube, hope, I would hope, I would, I would hope I'm wrong about that, but there was, there's a sketch where the Python guys are doing a restaurant and the deal with the restaurant is every dish has spam in it. I think this is the origin of like calling unwanted email as spam. And but. by the way, <laughs> I mean, if people don't know what, you know, what you're referring to, they might not even know what spam, spam is. So is right, spam, right. Yeah. So right. it's like this, this, uh, you know, spiced ham Something, package right, can yeah. sort of thing. You peel it's open, a whole thing. Yeah, yeah. It's a complicated thing. A lot of jelly involved. Okay. It's, yeah. it's not, it's not my shtick. I know that, but no. in, in, in any event, <laughs> in, in, in the Python sketch, it's sort of like, you know, what do you have? And they say, well, we have spam, eggs and spam, and we have toast and spam, and we have, and then and someone says, well, do you have anything with no spam in it? And they said, well, we have the you know, eggs and toast special. And they said, no spam. So, well, there's there's a little spam. A little bit. So, little bit. so we try and do a whole episode without talking about school funding and Kerwin, but we just we just can't quit Kerwin. So. We can't. And it's important <laughs> to point out there have been a lot of questions. The governor is, uh, is producing the funding to make Kerwin happen this year. Right. That was a big unknown. So that's all moving forward as far as we know things can change as the year moves along but for now it is funded um, but what are we going to do in the next few weeks michael as you said we can't get away from kerwin uh, i think we're going to take a deep dive yeah so next few weeks um we're going to be spending some time principally on the conduit street blog uh we write you know we write articles and so forth for our readers and we're going to be doing some digging into the way school funding works now and then the things that are on the table for the formula change that the Kerwin Commission is supposed to tackle over the next few months. They got a work group getting into this stuff. We're going to try and make that approachable and digestible for a county audience, including a lot of people who weren't in county government a year ago right, right. when this debate was, you know, was hot last go round. So we're going to make an effort on that. I think we'll do some reverb of that and amplify it through the podcast uh, and talk through that stuff. Um, I think it's meaningful content for the weeks ahead. So if you love Kerwin, you'll probably like the next several weeks. If it's not your thing, we'll do our best to make it manageable. Right? Is right, that fair? <laughs> right. And if you want to dig in, you can get on the blog. There'll be great content there. But yeah, we don't want to overwhelm everyone, even though I know we have a lot of Kerwin folks uh, who really enjoy hearing about it. And Michael, one more thing before we leave today. Yep. We talked earlier about last week's episode with John Fernay, and he mentioned that there was a, a small town in Montgomery County that was actually the capital of the United States for a very for, short time. Oh, and I mean, so what, there's nothing better, it turns out, than when we screw up, get a date wrong, or in this case, basically all three of us looked at each other and couldn't pull the name of the right. town. Right. in the moment and so the teeming millions out there who are you know loyal listeners of the conduit street podcast immediately are like tap 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 yes, yes. and so it's like yeah you know, the phones are lighting up the texts are coming in the emails are coming in so so you know hats off to to kathleen and to ted and our loyal friends who immediately let us know 
Brookville. 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 There's <laughs> Brookville, the Maryland. There it is. There's your Here's trivia. And you know, we know you knew it. We are sorry. We didn't know it. We'll 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 we'll, we'll try to do. Better. I blame John Frenet. So. Yeah, it was it was just so exciting. You yeah, know, it was, it was, that's what it was. We it ca- was, got caught up in the moment. Okay, so we'll leave it there for today. Lots to lots to talk about ahead, but if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe, tell your friends. It really helps us to get our message out. You can find us anywhere you listen to your podcasts. But for now, Michael and Kevin signing off, and we will talk to you soon.